0: Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. I pray that you would help us to understand it all the more and to apply its lessons and live by faith. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated, thank you. I knew our children would be in here this morning. It's not a children's church Sunday. So I'd like to have a little illustration for the children to begin. Children, sometimes unexpected things happen in life. I was, I don't remember how old I was, maybe nine or ten. I was reminded of this yesterday. We had our dishwasher, had a bit of a hard time yesterday. We found a bunch of soap that had not totally dissolved in our dishwasher. It was clogging up the works. Well, so you know, children, I have a history with dishwashers. (laughs) I was nine or ten years old, and my mom asked me to load the dishwasher and get it ready and I was so happy to help and I did that. I loaded the dishwasher and I filled the two little trays with the soap and I closed the two little trays and closed the dishwasher and said the dishwasher's ready and hit the button and off we went to a baseball game I believe it was. We, have a, we had a garage that would You would go into the garage and walk through a door and head upstairs to the upstairs portion where the dishwasher was. Now, children, we got back from the baseball game and something unexpected happened. I opened the door to go up the stairs and what greeted me but soap suds piled three feet high they had cascaded down the stairs. The farther I walked up the stairs, the deeper they got. And they led the trail into the kitchen that was itself completely and totally full of soap suds. And it was clear that they had been emanating, pouring forth from the dishwasher. My mom was startled. I thought it was awesome, (laughs) and ran at full speed through the suds, and that was a lot of fun, I have to tell you. My mom showed me two different bottles of soap, one that read Cascade, I think that's what it was, and the other that read Palmolive. Your moms know where this is going, and she said, which soap did you use? And I pointed, of course, to the palm olive, which is concentrated soap. It's soap that when it gets watery, you'd only need a tiny, tiny little bit to make a lot of suds. And I filled the dishwasher with them. Well, children, you can imagine my surprise when I opened that door and saw that vast amount of soap suds. Well, children, so you know, If you follow the Lord, if you follow the Lord, unexpected things are going to happen. Things that you could not possibly have dreamed would happen will happen. Now, they might not be like Soap suds, human error. But the unexpected things that will happen will seem to you to be bad things. But in God's way and in God's plan, they're not just good things. They're the best things. And here, when we come to this passage today, we see God do something so unexpected that in the moment couldn't have been thought of as anything other than a terrible negative. But turns out it was the best thing for God's people. And that's where faith will lead you, and that's where faith is leading us. Let's get a little context for our sermon this morning, which I'm entitling Light Dawns on the Nile. Israel, if you're just joining us for this series on Exodus, has been in slavery. They went to Egypt with the family. The family of Jacob went down to Egypt to avoid a famine, and that's where they stayed. And a pharaoh grew up that knew nothing of Joseph and Pharaoh had a dilemma on his hands. He wanted to keep the people of Israel and all the slave labor that they brought to the nation. He didn't want to forfeit the economic impact that they were having, but he was afraid that if they grew too numerous, they would outnumber his people, and in a military situation, they would find themselves in deep trouble. And so Pharaoh had this great dilemma on his hands. How do I keep the slave labor as strong as it needs to be while reducing the threat of producing more and more soldiers. And all along, all along, God is blessing this nation with children, blessed, lovely children, more children than they can count, babies everywhere coming out of Egypt from the Israelite households. It was something to behold. And so Pharaoh says, we need to nip this in the bud, and so he comes up with two different plans actually three different plans, but I only have the first two on this point. These first two plans failed incredibly. The first plan was to subject the Israelite people to slavery. They Men clearly have too much time on their hands. Let us busy them with labor, with hard labor. Let us wear them out and perhaps even Attrition will reduce the number of men, will have them do dangerous jobs that of course will take some of their lives and so much the better it will control the population and help our economy at the same time and Pharaoh's plan doesn't work. The Hebrews have even more babies. It's miraculous how many babies they're having and so he hatches another plan. He calls in the Hebrew midwives, Hebrew ladies, Israelites, and he tells them, when you go visit a woman who's having a child and the child is born, the moment the female, the woman, is relaxing from this hard labor that she had to do pre-medicine, when she relaxes, note, and if it's a boy, Strangle it and tell her the child was stillborn. The Hebrew midwives fear God and have nothing to do with this plan. And they likely, I'm not sure exactly how it worked, but they likely instructed all the Israelite women on how to bear their own children. And these midwives are called back into Pharaoh's presence. Hey, Why have you disobeyed us? And they say, well, listen, Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women. They're active. They have the, the source of life in them, and they bear these children before we can arrive. And Pharaoh comes up with his third and final solution. And this time, he deputizes the entire nation of Egypt. If you see a Hebrew male throw him into the Nile. Kill it. And we noted last week that even this, even this is Pharaoh not taking responsibility for his actions. Surely, it will be up to the will of the gods. And what we see in this nation is this threat, this grave threat to the Israelite people. And that sets the stage for what we read this morning and what we'll continue to study. Our first point of the day is a remarkable birth, a remarkable birth. Let's meet the parents of this situation. We're told that Moses had these two parents. Read in here in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. In fact, in verses 1 and 2, we see that there are several... um, Keys that this was no ordinary birth. This child being born, there was something special about him. And Moses tries to make that point clear uh, using several different literary devices. The first thing he does is in chapter 2, verse 1, he says that a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Now, it wasn't required of the people of Israel to marry within their families. Uh, there were 12 tribes or 12 families. We could think of them as almost 12 different states like we would have in our nation. We would not expect somebody from Wisconsin only to ever marry somebody from Wisconsin. I'm a Georgia boy, and I married a girl from New Hampshire, violating some sacred southern trust not to marry Yankees, but I did. I'm all the blessed for it. Well, here was a Levite marrying a Levite. And that's significant because the last time we encounter Levites is in Genesis 49, 5 and 6. Levi was an angry man. He was a bloodthirsty man. And Jacob says of him in Genesis 49, let me not enter into his counsel. I want nothing to do with that man. And now... We're told that a Levite man and a Levite woman, it's been four centuries since then. And as we move forward in this story, if you go ahead to Numbers chapter 1, verses 1 through 13, for example, the Levites are the tribe that are responsible for educating the people spiritually. They're the tribe who's responsible for the worship of Yahweh. They're the tribe who instills the sacrificial system of which Moses will write. As one commentator put it, God is pre-qualifying Moses to serve in the role that he will have simply because his parents, one Levite married another. He's a Levite through and through. And even by birth, he's qualified to do the job God has for him. Now, did you know that Moses' parents have names? And we know their names. His mother's name was Jacobed, and his father's name was Amram, you can look that up in Exodus chapter 6 verse 20 or numbers 26:59 Jochebed and Amram a levite man and a levite a levite woman Jochebed and a levite man Amram and they have a few different children who which you will get to in a minute but something happens when Jochebed has this child Moses and look in verse 2 it says I'm sorry I'm skipping ahead. Let me go back just one more. I'll be very brief on this point. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Look at verse 2. The woman conceived and bore a son. Now, that sounds like very ordinary Old Testament language, doesn't it? She conceived and bore a son. That's something we read often. Well, not quite so. This is actually a formula that Moses uses. And in the book of Genesis... He uses this formula 15 times for significant births. This is the 16th and final time he uses it. And so what Moses is trying to communicate here is there was something significant in his birth. God was doing something important in allowing this child to be born. Furthermore, there's something special about this child it reads right here that this woman saw that he was a fine child. He was a fine child. Now you can go ahead and put the next point up, because this kind of relates to it. If Jacobed were a first-time mother, you would expect her to say that that child was the most beautiful child she'd ever laid eyes on in her life. But this wasn't her first child. In fact, she had an older daughter named Miriam. We're not sure how old she was. She was at least old enough to be very, very wise. And they had another son who was three years older than Moses by the name of Aaron. What likely happened was Pharaoh's death order for all the people to throw the babies, the male babies, into the Nile was made after Aaron was born and before Moses was born. But Jacobed notices something about this child. I'm going to refer to a cross-reference much later. But there's something important about this child that we're just not sure what it means. It says that she looked and that she saw that the child was good. Now, again, Moses is doing something very important. The only time that particular construction is used is in Genesis 1 and 2. Do you remember what was happening? God says, Let there be light, and he saw that the light was good. He said, Let the waters separate, and he saw that 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 was good. He created dry land and the animals teeming in the sea, and he saw that it was good. He created man and woman and saw that it was very good. What Moses is trying to say here is that in his birth, God communicated something to Amram and Jochebed that indicated to them there was something special about that child. We don't know what it was. We don't know what it was that tipped them off. Moses was probably a big chunker. He was probably a big, healthy, bouncing boy. But there's more to it than that. God somehow indicated to Jacobed that this was supposed to be a special child. And so, Jacobed hatches a plan. That brings us to our next point. Jacobed's plan in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we see... Some more action happening here. It says that when she could hide him no longer, he was about three months old, and if he's a big, bouncing baby boy like we might expect at three months, it becomes a little bit harder to keep that baby quiet. We're going to find out in in a moment that Moses has a set of healthy lungs on him. And so he's especially hard to keep quiet. And so Jacobed goes down to the local market, or perhaps she has Amram make her something. It says that she made herself, and it says here in our translations in verse 3, it says that she took a basket. I want you to, I, I really actually want you to do this. Take a pen or pencil and draw a line through the word basket. It's not basket. That was a word that was used many years ago, and it is kind of stuck a, in our translations, and it should not be used. It's the word box, or the word ark, the ark of the covenant. It's the same word that's used to describe the ark that Noah built. It's just the word ark, box, a big box, a small box. You know, uh, carpenters will joke that they really only know how to make one shape. It's just a box. A house is just a giant box with boxes inside of it. Uh, nicely, uh, a bed that you make for your family is just a box with more boxes uh, cabinets is just a box with boxes in it. A box of any size, an ark, a box. And that's what she got. She got a box. had a lid on it and everything. It was made out of bulrushes. That was the material it was made of. It may have been kind of a wicker box, but it was still a box. And Jacobet does something. It says that she layered onto this box bitumen and pitch. The words Bitumen and pitch should probably be understood as one thing, uh, kind of like we would describe a cake. Like your your wife bakes a cake, you say, "Oh, what a lovely cake you made." You don't say, "Oh, man, that thing on the counter." You know the two eggs, the four cups of flour, the uh, four cups of sugar. How much ever sugar you. put. you know what I mean. You don't break down the individual components of the recipe and call it that, there was a substance made of bitumen and pitch that was extremely water-resistant. That's what she took. She got her hands on some tar. And it says that she layered it onto the box. Now, if you are reading this in Hebrew, you'll have noted that in chapter 1, verse 14 that the making and layering of tar was one of the exact things that Pharaoh used to keep the Israelites in slavery. She's learned some lessons. Perhaps Amram was a tar layer. She got herself a box. Amram brought home some tar. And she troweled it in a slave-like way, over that box until it was absolutely watertight. Had a lid. She put the boy in it. Now, I want you to know that jacob's plan is not abandonment. She's not putting Moses in a basket in a one-time act, putting the child into the river and floating him down the river and seeing what might come of him. That's not what she's trying to do. More likely than not, this was Moses' cradle during the day. When the troops were out, when houses were being searched, when it was hard for her to hide a bumptious baby boy, hungry all the time, she made a watertight box, handed it to Miriam, and said, Miriam, go down to this part of the river, very, there, there are in that region lots of parts of the river that are very gentle and where there's lots of reeds sticking up. And if a soldier were to get mad at her, Jacobed could always say, look, I obeyed the command. I threw the child into the river. You never said I couldn't put floaties on him. She so puts it, Miriam's job was to hang out there all day. Be just far enough away to intervene. In fact, in that area of the Nile, there's no crocodiles. The Nile is famous for its crocodiles, but in that section, there are none. Very gentle part. Whatever current there is could easily be mitigated by putting it in among the tall grass and the bushes. This thing is meant to conceal. It's hidden away. It's a great plan that Jacobed devises. You say, that's not sustainable. That, that baby's not going to be able to stay in there for more than just a few months. You might get away with it for a little bit of time, but if you're a Jacobed, if you're the mother of this child, who cares? You'll figure out tomorrow when tomorrow comes. This plan means Moses gets to live one extra day, and if that's what it takes, that's okay. So we don't know. We don't know how many days went by. We don't know how often Miriam went down with that little box and put that baby in the river and brought him back dutifully at night so that Moses could be fed, keeping in mind that Moses wasn't his name yet. Well, sometimes, no matter how good your plan is, God's plan diverges from ours. And when there's a battle of plans, our plan or God's plan, It's not really a contest of whose plan wins. Something very unexpected, even more unexpected than seeing soap sets cascade down my stairs was about to happen. Miriam takes this box. She puts it in the river. Does like her mom tells her. Steps back from it. And terror strikes her. And that brings us to our next point. A terrifying coincidence. Look at verse 5. It says now, that verse begins with now. That's a good now. That's a good translation. I think maybe our translations would have helped us by making a new paragraph there because it implies that there's a gap of time. Jacobed and Miriam and Amram were busy about this plan of protecting this baby boy in this waterproof box. And as it happened, one day, out of the blue, Something happens. And as you notice, I tried to bring it out in my reading. This phrase, the daughter of Pharaoh, the daughter of Pharaoh, the daughter of Pharaoh keeps occurring over and again. Moses is trying to communicate the unlikelihood, the shocking coincidence that a member of the high court would happen to be coming by with this box hidden in the bulrushes. The daughter of Pharaoh, can you believe it? Well, The daughter of Pharaoh, she comes down with her retinue, all her servants. She's probably not going there to take a bath. They had, Egyptians were a very advanced civilization. They had indoor plumbing. They had bathtubs. the daughter of Pharaoh was probably going down to the river for some sort of religious ceremony. It was some sort of ceremonial washing in the river that she considered to have divine importance. She is most likely in the middle of a religious event. Her security guards and her ladies are watching for intruders or for criminals and also for her privacy. She walks down into the stream, into the river to perform this religious ceremony and something catches her eye. Turns out this woman is observant and kind. This woman is a marvel. Something tells me God wasn't done with this woman yet. I don't have any Bible reason for that, but she's the type of woman that God had at just the right moment, in the right place. She sees something out of place, and she sends one of her ladies to go get the box out of the bulrushes. And they bring to her, they bring to her this box. And the grammar here is amazing. It says that she took the box and she opened it. Behold, a child! (laughs) Not even A, just behold, child! (laughs) She was shocked! And it says that Moses was weeping. Now, this isn't... Now, moms and dads, you know this kind of weeping. In the Baker home, we call it purple-faced weeping, okay? Purple-faced crying, wailing, okay? You moms know sometimes you have the baby and they are letting it rip. They're screaming at the top of their lungs. Moses is letting it go. And this woman takes notice, this baby is weeping, wailing. And she says, This must be one of the Hebrew children. We don't know exactly why she drew that conclusion. Perhaps there was a different way of swaddling or dressing their children. Perhaps it was just the fact that here's a baby in the Nile River, a boy in the Nile. She draws the right conclusion, and it says that she takes pity. And this word pity is generally a military term. It's the type of word that's used for when you've taken prisoners captive and they're kneeled before you expecting their lives to be snuffed out. And the captor, instead of killing them, takes pity on them and they live. And so from the princess's perspective, here is a child destined for death and she spares him. It wasn't just an emotional connection that she had with the child, though it was profound. In that moment, before Miriam arrives, before she meets Moses' mother, she had determined in her heart this child would not die on her watch. And as she's contemplating the next steps, as she's deciding what to do, God works for the greatest good. And here, Miriam comes. Miriam comes. Now, little girls, we have little girls in here. Any little girl under the age of 12, I want you to look at Miriam and marvel. She is so wise, Miriam. What she says to Pharaoh's daughter. Did you know that at this point, Miriam spoke both Hebrew and Egyptian? She spoke at least two languages. She was smart, respectful, resourceful she knew exactly what to do now little girls the world expects you to be silly but you never know when the world you never know rather when God will call on you to be wise you might need that in a moment Miriam was ready she was ready Miriam goes up to her and she says oh I see you have one of these Hebrew children. Would you like me to go call a nurse from the Hebrews? In other words, she's telling her, I know you've already determined in your heart to take mercy on this child and pity this child. I know you're going to want to feed this child. Would you like for me to go get a nurse that I happen to know... I'm not telling you that it's my mother and this baby's mother. It just so happens I know a Hebrew wet nurse. And suddenly Pharaoh's daughter, believe it or not, takes charge. Yes, she starts speaking out commands. Yes, go, go right now. And Miriam runs and gets the boy's mother. Jochebed is found. Jochebed, I'm sure, was going about her tasks Miriam comes bursting into the house, and mothers, what would you have said to Miriam? Why aren't you with your brother? Pharaoh's daughter is holding him. What? She wants you. Come quickly. I can imagine. I don't know how dignified it was for these women to run, but I'm sure Jacobed Ran. Ran right to Pharaoh's daughter, and Pharaoh's daughter, again, taking blessed charge of this situation. She's only speaking out imperatives, and she's doing it with sort of a clipped machine gun style that sovereigns use. Take this child. Nurse him. You will not be my debtor. I will pay you. And wouldn't you know it? The man who threatened to throw that child in the Nile, is paying for Moses' milk. He doesn't know it yet, though. He doesn't know it yet. He will. Well, in this moment, Pharaoh actually takes formal adoption of the child. The child is now hers. She takes it, And then later, after the child is weaned. Now, in the ancient world, the the child wasn't considered weaned until he he or she was five, six, up to eight years old. So by the time Jochebed brings Moses to the daughter of Pharaoh, he's a little older now. And it's at that moment when Jochebed brings the young boy to Pharaoh's daughter, that she finalizes the adoption and she gives the child his name. And it's hard to bring out here in English because it wouldn't make much sense. But it says that she named him Moshe because she mosheed him from the Moshe. <laughs> it's, just this, it's this wonderful play on words. And scholars have twisted themselves into 57 knots this way forward and back over whether this is a Hebrew word or an Egyptian word or what the significance of it is. I tell you, I read them and I have no idea what to make of it or even the significance of it. All I know is this lady gave the boy an Egyptian name indicating that he was thrown into that water for destruction, but she brought him out. And it was that bringing out that set him apart. And she's celebrating that with his very name. Now, Moses is writing this on purpose to bring up some ironies. This story is dripping with ironies. And I want to bring out three of them to you right now. Three delicious ironies from this text. Number one, Pharaoh lets the women live. And wouldn't you know it, God uses only women to further his grand plan. You may have noticed that Amram is nowhere to be found. He's probably off making tar somewhere. Jochebed is the one who's putting this basket together. Jochebed puts Miriam in charge, a little girl, Miriam in charge of this little baby. And it's Pharaoh's daughter with Pharaoh's daughter's retinue down there. It's only women. It's only women. Now, that's, the author is not saying, oh, look, God can use even women. It's not that. The irony the author is trying to bring out is the very thing Pharaoh was worried about was that these people would leave. So he wanted to cast the male children into the Nile, and he would let the ladies live, and... By killing the males, it would weaken and destroy this nation to some extent. But when God is in something, he can use the weaker vessels. He can use the unexpected things. He can use the unexpected people. God says, okay, you don't want men interfering. I'll just use my ladies. This is a story of ladies who exercised faith and who exercised a little, more than a little civil disobedience from the daughter of Pharaoh herself, defying the order of her powerful father. Number two, Pharaoh's instruments of torture were mortar and the Nile And it was those two instruments that God uses to save a deliverer. Let's break their backs by making them tar makers and bricklayers. Skills Jacobed used in making a waterproof basket. Throw the babies into the Nile. Okay. Hey, Pharaoh, your very own daughter is going to fish one of these children out of the Nile and that child is going to become Israel's deliverer. The very things Pharaoh was using for their harm and evil, God used for their salvation. Number three, Pharaoh feeds and educates the man who will one day destroy Pharaoh's nation. It's amazing. Pharaoh put a plan in place that would make it risky for any Hebrew child to live. And turns out his very plan ensured the safety and education of this child. Moses is actually a brilliant man. I had noted this last week. His writing is astounding. His writing is a literary marvel. To show his versatility, the book of Deuteronomy takes a completely different shift from his normal style and he adopts what's called a Hittite Suzerainty Treaty. He adopts the form of this sophisticated piece of ancient literature and turns it into his own. This is a man who had a world-class education and got that paired with a world-class mind. But there was some world-class humility that needed to be worked in him first. And that's what we'll study next week. But for now, I want to leave us with one application. Remember when I told you there was one cross-reference I was leaving off, saving it to the end? Well... I'm going to put it on the screen in front of you, and you can write it down. It's Hebrews 11.23. There, the Spirit of God gives us a commentary on how we, what we should make of this story. How, how many different ways could we apply this story? We could talk about ladies and civil disobedience and audacity. We could talk about, as I did before, talking to young women about being wise we could talk about the preservation of life and the value of infants. We can talk about all sorts of things. And all of them would be good and appropriate. But the Holy Spirit tells us what we should make most of it. And here's what he says. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Faith fought back against fear. Faith fought back against fear. That's the lesson. Exodus 2, 1 through 10 is a story about two parents who exercised desperate, Day to day and audacious faith. Nothing went as planned. Everything went as planned. From their perspective, they did not want Pharaoh's daughter to come to the riverbank and take that boy out of the river. That's what God wanted. From their perspective, they didn't want to give up Moses and have him go educated in the house of Pharaoh. That's a scary place where Pharaoh could end his life. From God's perspective, that's exactly what he wanted. Nothing went like they thought it should. Everything went according to plan. Now, friends, listen. The New Testament tells us that the righteous shall live By faith. We are made children of God when we believe. For it is by grace that you are saved through faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes, that's the word, that's the verb for faith, believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life were brought into the kingdom of God by this first act of faith. But faith is a muscle. And God won't have you use it only once. He wants you to exercise it and exercise it and exercise it and use it and use it until it grows into this robust thing that your entire life is defined by your belief that God is for you. And when you believe that, when you accept, God is for me, I am right with God. God loves me. God's already demonstrated how much he loves me by sending his son for me. I am God's. I am his. He has me in the palm of his hand. And when you accept that and believe that, you start doing things like defying the most powerful government on the earth. You start saving your children. You start doing audacious, bold things for Christ because you know he has you. We're brought into the kingdom by faith. But then God wants us to exercise that faith day in and day out and day in and day out until it grows into something that's more precious to him than gold. The best thing to do if you want to grow your faith is look backward. See what God did back then. And then tomorrow today if you will life isn't going to match up what you read back there you live your life as though it actually does you don't see the end and you start applying what God did back there to what you see in front of you that's exercising faith and God will build that and grow that and maybe one day, people will tell stories about you like Moses did Jacobed. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your kindness and goodness to us. Thank you that you have preserved stories like these just for us and how true they are. Thank you for Jacobed and Amram, who live by faith, Lord, may we believe your word and all that it says about you to the extent that it starts to inform how we live. May we trust you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.